back in 2005, when I was a sports columnist for the Orlando Sentinel, I broke an unfortunate racial barrier. I was the only black female sports columnist at a daily newspaper in North America. And notice I didn't say America, but the North with an F out of 405 daily newspapers. A lot of people patted me on the back for that, but I didn't really want to be congratulated. I took no pride whatsoever in having that distinction. How I felt about it is this week's word of the week. And that word is embarrassed. I wasn't embarrassed for myself. I was embarrassed for my industry because it was such a shameful indictment of how little this industry thought about black women. So this week, a similar historical barrier was broken in the National Football League. The Washington football team, formerly the Washington professional team with the slur as a nickname, hired 38 year old Jason Wright, who is now the first black president in NFL history. Before you are tempted to break into applause, realize that the NFL turned 100 years old last week. And in 100 years, the first time a team went forward with hiring a black man as a team president of an organization was last week. That is absolutely shameful. Now, let's not forget what it took for the Washington football team to get to a point where they finally were willing to hire a black man to such a key position. Last month, 15 former female employees of the organization told the Washington Post that they were sexually harassed and were subjected to a toxic work environment. Now, as a result of these brave women coming forward, Washington announced it was dropping the racial slur nickname which is something activists have been begging for them to do forever. So what changed between the allegations of widespread harassment, the murder of George Floyd, national protests erupting around the country, Washington as a franchise was finally forced to reckon with its own behavior. Now, Jason Wright was more than qualified for this position. He's got an MBA from University of Chicago. And while he's the youngest team president in league history, he was a partner in a global strategy and management consulting firm. He also played seven years in the NFL. But don't think for a moment that Washington isn't motivated on some level by optics. They're trying to distance themselves from their well-deserved racist reputation by showing people just how progressive they suddenly are. In many ways, it's very on brand for when black people get put into positions like this. When all else fails, when there is nowhere to go but up, let's see what somebody black can do. Then they want to give you all the chances in the world. Same thing happened with former President Barack Obama. Now, I know some people don't like to remember this part, but the country's entire economy was, what's the word? In the shitter. We were in the deep throes of a recession when America said, you know what? Fuck it. Let's see what the black guy can do. Can't get any worse. Anyway, I am happy for Jason and I really hope he does a fantastic job. But the fact that it's 2020 and those kind of firsts are still being reached says everything about just how many barriers stand in the way of black advancement. That is why the word of the week is embarrassing. Speaking of embarrassing shit, what's truly embarrassing is how some people, many of whom consider themselves to be leaders in this country, are trying to disrespect, diminish, and in some cases outright silence the work of my next guest. 
She's one of the best authorities on racial history in the country. She's also an incredible journalist who has done some of the most introspective and critical reporting on racial injustice in America. And she does it for the New York Times. A year ago, Nicole Hannah-Jones and a team of journalists from the Times released the 1619 Project, which I promise you is one of the most important pieces of journalism ever done. The 1619 Project traced the legacy of slavery from the time the first slave ship arrived on what we know as America to virtually every core of American life, farming, entertainment, health, medicine, literally everything. And because this project was just so cohesive, it was so well embraced generally by the public because it kept selling out. There's a lot of people, some even historians, a lot of white conservatives who have tried to belittle this work by questioning its historical accuracy. But I've never seen anything like the 1619 Project done before, and neither has anybody else, which is why Nicole won a Pulitzer Prize for her essay in this project. This project will be taught in schools despite the resistance against doing so. Now, I'm pleased that Nicole is joining me today because we're going to discuss not only the legacy of slavery, but she's going to educate everybody listening on some of the common myths about slavery. So prepare to be informed. Nicole Hannah-Jones up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So, Nicole, I actually have to credit you for getting me back into exercising during this pandemic. Um, I put on that healthy little, see, you can't see it now with the way this is blocked. But, you know, I put on that healthy COVID, that COVID-19 stands for 19 pounds. Didn't put on that much, but I've been out here living my fluffiest life. And so, of course, I'd read the 1619 Project, but I had not listened to the podcast. And I knew I was going to um, be interviewing you at some point. So, when I first started going back to running and, um, you know, just working out and exercising, 1619 Project was my jam, if you will. Okay. Uh, you have an amazing voice, by the way. I don't know if people have told you that. Like, I, Thank you. And not to mention because of uh, it was almost like I had just read the 1619 Project for the first time. So my level of anger kept me off the focus of, you know, dying from the fact that I hadn't worked out in a while. So it worked out. You were probably running real hard. <laughs> yes, you kept me good and angry. And I was like, this is what I needed to, to fuel this. But no, I mean, overall, I mean, I know you've been told this 5,000 times already. So let me be 5,001. It's like the 1619 Project was the most stunning journalistic endeavor I'd ever seen. And um, uh, I think for a lot of us Black journalists who got into the business, when you think about the type of work that you imagine doing, like something that leaves a lasting imprint, this is something that you imagine in your mind. And just to see it being done in the high level of execution, it um, was one of those affirming things for me as a Black journalist, like, yes, we can do this kind of work. And yes, it can, you know, leave a stamp. 
I, I'm just curious um, because I imagine um, I know the execution of this wasn't easy, but I want to go back to when you first pitched this project to your editors. Please walk me through what this conversation was like when you said, hey, I got an idea. Let's break down the legacy of slavery. Yeah. So, um, one, thanks for having me on the show. And also, congratulations on your new talk show that's coming out. So, oh, thank you. Uh, for Appreciate those that. of us who are who've been pulling for you just because of how uh, you always have spoken up for our folks. Um, it's just great to to see that all the ways that they try to, to stamp us out, it's just not, it's not working. So um, uh, very happy for you. So um, most people assume that it had to have been really difficult to get the New York Times to support this project. And I 100% understand why people would assume that, but it really wasn't the case. Uh, so, I had been on book leave. Uh, it was supposed to be a year-long book, book leave that extended to a year and a half. And uh, when I got back, I actually had kind of made a plan with my uh, direct editor, Elena Silverman, that I was going to kind of lay low because I didn't finish my book. And so I needed to uh, still finish my book and you know do some smaller things for the Times. Uh, and that plan lasted like one week. And... Um, I just had been, the last few months of my book leave, I'd been spending a lot of time thinking about this 400th anniversary coming up and really just bothered knowing that this, you know, the 400th anniversary of the first Africans being sold into what would become the United States was going to pass. And like everything about our history and our story, it was going to be neglected, that there was probably going to be almost no acknowledgement or recognition of, um, this really momentous and foundational moment. And I'm at the New York Times. So I have a platform to do something about that. So um, about a week after I started back from book leave, I just went to my editor and I was like, I really think we should just do a whole magazine um, dedicated to looking at not just telling the history of slavery, but the ongoing legacy. And my pitch was pretty much, Anything that you look at in American life, I can trace it back to slavery. Name something and I can trace it back to slavery. And, you know, capitalism, democracy, our diet, um, popular music, clearly the criminal justice system. And I said we should just dedicate an issue to examining that legacy. I think when I pitched it, uh, I think I asked her and um, Jake Silverstein, who's the editor-in-chief of the magazine, have you ever heard of the year 1619? Like, do you know that this next this year is going to be the 400th anniversary? And they had never heard of that date. And I think they were really surprised that they that black people had been here that long. So she immediately said, Yeah, I think you should pitch it to Jake. So we have a weekly ideas meeting at the magazine, and I pitched it at the magazine. I never wrote a formal pitch. I just told her what my idea was. And uh at that meeting, he said, We're going to do it. It's, you know, it's not easy to dedicate an entire magazine to one issue, but they were for it from the beginning and actually uh, had the idea to expand it even bigger than my my original vision. Now, you very intentionally, as you brought up, started with 1619. And I'm sure there are some people listening like, but wait, we weren't even a fully formed country in 1619. So please explain why you thought it was important to start tracing the legacy of slavery from that point, as opposed to when we were known as America? Because the argument of 1619 is that slavery is foundational 
it is just as foundational to America as anything else. And part of it being foundational is that it precedes us even being a country that um, just seven years after uh, the English landed Jamestown, we decide that, uh, or excuse me, 12 years, we decide that we're going to engage in chattel slavery. That matters. And we know that Virginia was the first of the British North American colonies that would become the United States. George Washington was a Virginian, uh, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson. So absolutely the fact that um, right after the English settlers land there, we engage in chattel slavery means that that would have a huge influence on the country we would become. And the interesting thing is we know um, the Mayflower landed in 1620 which is a year before uh, the White Lion, which was a slave ship that uh, began our journey here. And no one ever questions why we talk about the Mayflower. We, every American child learns about the Mayflower. We understand that the Mayflower mattered, um, even though I would argue the White Lion matters far more to American institutions than the Mayflower. Um, so it's that same thing is, is um, you know, Thomas Jefferson wasn't an American until 1776. Uh, George Washington wasn't an American until 1776. They were English colonists and our laws and our uh, politics and our culture began before 1776. And so the influence of slavery uh, predates our country, which to me speaks to how it is in the DNA of our country, because it was started before we even decided we wanted to be a country. Why do you think uh, uh, overall, because I, I'll get into some of the the counter arguments that I know you hear about looking into slavery, um, which are all in, infinitely <laughs> stupid, but we'll get into them anyway. Uh, but why do you think it's important that in 2020 that we understand what the legacy of slavery is? I know that's a rhetorical question uh, because we just have to look out at what's happening in the streets right now. So um, what leads a white police officer to put his hands in his pocket and kneel on a black man's death for eight minutes and 46 seconds, knowing he's being recorded? Um, what leads to that moment? What leads people all across the country in all 50 states to take to the streets to have to declare uh, what should be uh, a fundamental truth, which is that black lives matter? Uh, why do we have a man in the White House right now who is retweeting um, supporters saying white power and who today says that uh, he's not going to enforce the Fair Housing Act because black, basically black people moving to the suburbs has ruined the suburbs? Uh, all of that is because we were a country who engaged in chattel slavery, who believed that it was okay to buy and sell human beings for profit and had to develop a system of racism to justify uh, buying and selling human beings for profit. And we've never purged ourselves of that legacy. Donald Trump got elected because we are uh, a country founded on white supremacy. And he spoke to enough white Americans who were worried that they were losing their place in the racial hierarchy. So we can't understand and where we are in America without understanding uh, the racism that develops to justify slavery. It, it all starts there. So much about our country uh, starts there. Yeah, we, I mean, you, you said a, a very key phrase about, you know, kind of purging the original sin of slavery. Part of the reason we can't do it is the forms of slavery continue to reinvent themselves that, you know, we went from slavery all the way up to mass incarceration, whole lot of stuff happened in between, of course, but it's not like when slavery ended and uh, we had our freedom that things just went like, all right, well, slavery's over. Let's go. It just continued to, um, you know, reinvent itself. So I'm going to throw 
some really dumb arguments that I know have been thrown at you <laughs> when it comes to uh, the 1619 uh, uh, project, because I know that even before you did this project, you often heard these arguments. So uh, I'm going to throw a few at them and you can give me what is the historically accurate response so that people know. Okay. One of my favorites, one of the favorite hits, but black people sold other black people into slavery, of course, referring to Africans selling slaves to white Europeans. The response is. <laughs> yeah. So one, there was no such thing as Africans back then. We're talking about hundreds of different uh, nations and ethnic groups who did not actually see themselves as selling each other in slavery. So what, we would not say uh, that Europeans fought Europeans in World War II. We say that Germans uh, fought the French and the English uh, fought the Germans. So that's just racist to flatten all of these different groups together. But also... Um, the type of slavery that was practiced in Africa was not a racialized, heritable, chattel slavery where people had uh, no existing rights, where your children were born into slavery and uh, their children forever, and that your very identity was a slave. Um, and even if it were, I don't understand how uh, Black people somewhere else doing something wrong somehow justifies white people buying and selling human beings and breeding human beings and selling people on auction block. So the um, what I find is interesting is we're raised to believe that America is an exceptional nation. And we hear this all the time. We are exceptional, except when it comes to slavery. Then we want to say, oh, we were just like everybody else. So it's not a big deal. Well, either you're exceptional or you're not. What makes us exceptional is of all these countries all these uh, ethnic groups that engaged in slavery, we were only the ever one founded on the idea of inalienable and universal God-given rights. All those other places, they never pretended everyone was equal. They weren't founded on the idea that everyone was equal and everyone was deserving of the same rights. We were. And that actually is an exceptional hypocrisy that we need to deal with. All right. Uh, another one. Uh, Jewish people had the Holocaust. They were able to recover from that. Why can't you black people recover from something that happened or started, I should say, for 100 years ago or that lasted for 400 years? Right. So one, um, what was the duration of the Holocaust compared to 250 years of chattel slavery? Two, Jewish people had to leave Germany. There are hardly any Jewish people in Germany right now because it is almost impossible uh, to be treated as full citizens in a place that tried to kill off your entire race of people. Black Americans live in the country that did this to us. There is a big difference when you are able to escape and go to a different place and start over versus when you are the oppressed minority in the country that did the oppressing. So I think that... Um, that's just a disingenuous argument, as all of these are. Um, and also, we don't need to compare different groups of people. If people have suffered um, in different ways. And uh, when Jewish people came to the uh, America, they were not on the bottom of the racial caste system. And the fact that we think of Jewish people as white right now, I think, speaks to uh, the different experiences here in America. I've often said that one of the things that's often, I think, challenging when you begin to uh, write about or at least question some of these American ideals that we were all fed into our mind about us being the greatest country, us being, you know, the the freest, you know, the, the most liberated. And your these ideas are baked into your mind a, as a child. And one of the uh, more important scenes that you painted in the essay that you wrote in the 1619 Project was at the same time that this incredible 
you know, document that is supposed to be the foundation of our freedom in this country is being written, that they were very aware that there was something really hypocritical happening. Like, how can you write about freedom? Because I think you even point out that the word slavery was never mentioned and or there was no acknowledgement of that. Well, the real world is that the founders and creators of our, our founding documents were all slave owners. And so they're writing about freedom and about man and justice and all this. And yet they're enslaving people at the same time. How much does having that uh, hypocrisy sort of baked into our foundation made it difficult for us to actually come to grips um, with the fact that at the same time, while we're lording ourselves over the world and, you know, saying we're the, the free world, that we can't even deal with this original sin or have never been able to deal with those two conflating kind of ideas. Yeah. Um, Dr. King said that America is a schizophrenic nation. And he said that for that exact reason, because we were founded on a hypocrisy. And I've always said that black people are the most inconvenient people for this country, because uh, every time you see us, you're reminded that we actually weren't founded on freedom. We were actually founded on slavery. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, when we talk about the greatest generation of World War II, we have to, if you see Black people, you have to acknowledge that Black people were serving in a segregated military, that they were fighting uh, fascists abroad while facing fascism at home, um, that they were being lynched for wearing their, their World War II uniforms, their soldiers' uniforms back home. And, and so we haven't been able to grapple with those truths. And, and really the, um, the, the campaign the, the propaganda campaign began right at the time of the revolution because uh, the colonists knew they're, they're making their case why they should be free from Great Britain. And they're invoking the language of slavery to say that the King of England is, is enslaving the white colonists and is treating them like slaves and they have a right to be free. And of course, the British are saying, well, you might want to actually talk to the people who actually are enslaved in your country. And so the British are calling out the hypocrisy of the colonists. And so they, they know that they have to cover up what they're doing. They're reliant on slavery. Um, the, it, it's not an incidental that the first uh, 10 of the first 12 presidents were enslavers. This was how they were uh, making their money, it was how they were gaining their power. And yet they needed to hide what they were doing because they knew the hypocrisy. That's why, as you said, you don't see the word slavery in the Constitution, even as the Constitution protects the institution of slavery. We've seen that again and again, and, and racism, uh, the racism that justifies slavery has long been our Achilles heel. Other countries have known this is how you can exploit America. The British did it during the Revolutionary War. They started offering enslaved people freedom if they took up arms against the colonists, and uh, thousands of Black people did because we didn't care which white people it was. We just wanted whichever ones were going to make us free. Um, you saw this during World War II. The reason the military gets desegregated is because Germany and Japan start uh, doing a propaganda campaign saying, how are you over here fighting? Uh, and you have your black people pressed back home and you have black people fighting in segregated troops. And so Eisenhower has to desegregate the military. And we see that now. We see that with uh, Russian disinformation campaigns. When they want to target and divide Americans, they know that they just have to divide us along racial lines. So this, this inability to grapple 
with this founding hypocrisy and, and, and instead of facing it to try to cover it up, uh, to try to pretend that it doesn't exist, uh, has always been the Achilles heel of the United States and um, has always led us to really want to downplay the ongoing racial inequality and racism that we uh, see in this country. And to bring it even further to the present, um, they have to, people have to understand the reason most black people in this country recoiled and are offended by that phrase, make America great again. It's because we are waiting for you to answer when it was ever great for us because it wasn't. And we know that that's just a nostalgic play to back when it was really great for them at our expense. Um, um, as I can't say enough that how much um, the 1619 project, I, I wish they would pass it out in schools. We are. <laughs> You are about, okay, good. You're, you're passing it out of school. Yeah. Uh, can people still order it? Because for a while it was, it was so hot. You just couldn't even get it anywhere. Are people able to order the 1619 project and, and see the physical form or no? Unfortunately, um, it sold out again. Um, we had, we, we reissued copies three times and it's, it's sold out again this last time because of the Black Lives Matters protests. We, we sold out, but, um, you can get it for free. So the, the 1619 project is also a curriculum. It, it, uh, we help produce a free curriculum with the Pulitzer Center. And if you go to that website, you can get PDFs of the copy that you can download. It looks just like the magazine, but you have to print it yourself. And of course, as I said, you, you must listen to the 1619 project, uh, podcast, which is, um, truly exceptional. Um, at least from what I understand, you guys will be rolling out more underneath the umbrella of this project. What else can we expect? Yeah. So we are, um, going to be issuing a series of books with, uh, Penguin Random House, everything from, uh, children's books to young adult readers to, uh, adult book. And in the adult book, which is what we're working on right now, there'll be, uh, six to seven additional essays looking at different uh, aspects of American life, as well as more pieces of the poetry and, and short fiction. Uh, I'm sure when you had that uh, meeting with your editors and you pitched this, you probably never imagined that the reaction to this piece would be what it was. Um, or maybe you did. Maybe you're just like, look, this is about to be the shit. Okay, I don't know. But either way, um, there has been such an overwhelming reaction uh, to and to what this piece is and, and what it's accomplished, but also a reaction in the negative. You have a lot of historians that have been trying to challenge it. Um, it's made you a, a darling among the right wing media and certain conservatives. How have you handled the negative reaction that's trying to challenge, um, you know, the strength and the core of this piece? So um, I, I had no idea how. I certainly didn't think that the 1619 project would get the response that it did. Um, and in fact, uh, I'm sure you've had this experience before when, when you put push for something that's not been done before and you're a black woman, uh, the pressure, because you know, if it's not successful, uh, you're never going to get an opportunity to do something like that again. And you're probably also closing the door on other black folks coming behind you who try to push for something um, that's really ambitious. So um I was grateful for the response, but I, I had no expectation. Uh, I did think we had produced something really powerful because um, I refused to compromise on the language, on um, how stark the, the reality of the experience was. We, you know, almost everybody who wrote uh, in the project was black. The artists were black. The photographers were black. Uh, so I knew that what we were doing was something important. But you also know you can produce something uh, powerful and 
people don't care. Like you, you never actually know how people are, are going to respond to something. So I was really overwhelmed by the positive response. And I have to say, really not surprised by the negative response. You know, this was a project that was arguing that we should consider 1619 our true founding and not 1776. And saying that Black people were actually the ones who brought democracy to this country. And saying that uh, we should center the contributions of Black Americans as this country's true founding father. You don't say that and not expect you're going to get a lot of right-wing pushback. Um, what did surprise me was uh, that historians who are not considered politically conservative historians really felt it was their mission to try to discredit the project. I've studied history long enough to know that historians disagree over interpretations of facts all the time. Historians love to argue with each other. So that wasn't surprising, but... Uh, the intensity of the effort to not just say we don't agree with her, but to say uh, she was wrong, you need to retract and uh, discredit has been surprising. Uh, how do I deal with it? Depends on the day. <laughs> Some days is better than others. Uh, usually those better days are when I stay off of Twitter. Um, I, it, you know, It's not unusual for me to get a text from some uh, a good friend of mine and be like, you need to put the phone down. Uh, because as you know, like people don't know how hard you work, how deeply invested you are in, in the work that you do. And um, to like take so lightly the effort to discredit it. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't come from refined people. Uh, I feel the need to, to fight back and it's not always effective, but um, it's just hard for me to like be silent when people are trying to discredit my work. And that just, you know, was drinking a lot of bourbon too. So that, that also helped. <laughs> What's your favorite bourbon, by the way? I actually like a bourbon called High West. And I like Willet and basically any decent bourbon. There's like a great um, Four Roses small batch that I like, but if it's not Jim Beam, I'll drink it. <laughs> I might drink Jim Beam if there's nothing else available. You're like, me, if so. the day's been too difficult, they might, <laughs> they might be like, you know what? <laughs> exactly. We go back uh, to some college days. Um, uh, I could spend like three hours asking you just about the 1619 Project alone, but there are some other things I want to get to. Um, you went into Pulitzer, which is amazing, um, so well-deserved, and, and certainly about how you personally have been impacted uh, by this project. And I have some fun questions because they all people always ask you to solve racism, Nicole. <laughs> Not on this show. Okay, good. We got some much sillier questions to ask, uh, but more with Nicole Hannah-Jones when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You were mentioning before the break about, you know, how, how you handle it depends on the day. I mean, I understand like you poured so much of yourself into this project. So naturally and expectedly, you would take that very personally uh, when people start to come at you. 
Um, but nevertheless, in, in doing that and coming after you, um, people in, are trying to discredit you on a whole new level. I, I recently saw the story where they went back and looked at a letter to the editor that you wrote like 25 <laughs> or so years ago and tried to use this as some kind of gotcha moment. Um, the piece has made you a target. What has that been like to not just you, but your family as well? What has that been like to adapt from going from, you know, a journalist putting out important work to suddenly being a target of some disingenuous and truly bad faith actors? Yeah, um, it's it's hard. Um, for most of my career, I just wrote what I wanted and nobody knew what who I was. Uh, I've been writing about, you know, racial segregation in schools and housing and police violence for, you know, 10, 15 years. And um, it wasn't until I wrote something about our nation's history of slavery that all of a sudden I, I became, you know, a target. And it's 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 stressful. Like when they when they found, I didn't even remember the piece that I wrote when I was 19 years old. And I was like, damn, like they they're digging like that. Um, so I, I understand what the effort is, and it's definitely not easy. But at the same time, I understand like the bigger the platform and the bigger the megaphone, it's not all going to be positive. The fact that so many people are engaging with the work um, is, of course, then going to also have a lot of people work trying to discredit it. And one thing that I that I do a lot, which my husband doesn't think is helpful, but it's helpful to me, is I just think about what someone like Ida B. Wells went through, and just, I guess I just try to put it in perspective that like whatever little bit of struggle I feel, it's like nothing um, compared to what the ancestors who paved the way went through. And so I, you know, I can deal with it, I guess. Now, when people are threatening to burn down my house and my mom's house, that was a bit much, but um, in general, I can deal with it, but it's, it's not easy. You just realize like you, you're, you, you have to be so much more careful. I mean, you know, like when, when Twitter first started, it was like, it was like a text message. Like you could be much more free willing and I'm a very irreverent person in general. So I say off the cuff things. Um, but now when I say them, it gets quoted in an article, like I'm being serious and you know, it's on Fox news. So I just can't live my life as freely and as openly. I just have to be much more careful than I used to. And, um, I don't really like that, but it, it just is what it is. So with, with you having to, make these allowances for the fact that, you know, you're famous now, right? <laughs> okay. You are famous. I will put that, put you definitely a small group of nerdy people. Yes. <laughs> I know. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Not a small group of nerdy people. I think there is uh, a lot of people who know who you are now. Um, to that end, have you had maybe a cool celebrity experience as a result? Look, I saw you on with Oprah. Okay. So Oprah knows who you are. That's pretty famous. Yeah. You know, despite the downside of being threatened and having to live your life differently, has there been an upside, like a cool part of maybe somebody you met, somebody who read the 1619 project and loved it that you didn't expect? Um, you know, give us a story here if there is one. I mean, I actually would say the, the cool experience is Oprah because um, she Loved the project. I'd never talked to Oprah in my life, of course. Why would I? Um, and it's been like super supportive. And um, we had a conversation about, you know, ways to expand. And then I get like this, you know, text message. And it's like, Oprah texted you? She did. She asked for like my autograph on the 1619 project. And I'm like, you like, why on earth would you want uh, my autograph? And we had a meeting. And it's so funny because like, I, I actually, 
really don't care about celebrity. Like if I if I see a famous person, I'm the, I'm the person who will never go up and ask you, you know, introduce myself or ask for an autograph. Like I, I've just I'm a, I'm an extrovert if I know you, but I'm actually quite introverted if I don't know you. So it's just not my style. But when I met her. Uh, I literally just wanted to crawl into her arms like a baby. Like I was like, <laughs> there's like the way she smelled and her hair and like just everything was just perfect and her voice. And I was like, oh my God, you're just like, you know, you're, you're worried when you meet someone who you have admired and, and known your whole life that they're going to do something to disabuse you of like how you felt about them. But uh, that wasn't the case at all. And I was like, I, I just wish she would hold me, which sounds a little crazy. <laughs> right now no no totally i understand i always said that if i ever met oprah i sort of had this feeling when i met michelle obama it's like michelle obama hugged me and it felt like my soul left and i was just like that's what i needed like it is very odd you just want her to to hold you and tell you everything will be all right in her oprah voice exactly and you're like you know she's she's a person but no she's she's more than that so so when oprah texts you um do you read the text in her oprah voice Cause that's what I would do. I don't think I do, but now, now I'm <laughs> sure I will. Now I'm sure I will. Yes. I, I was like, I would hear her voice saying the text and that would just make that experience that much more. Yeah. I, I, that, it would make it great. And I would also find random, random reasons to text Oprah. Like, have you, have you texted Oprah? Just like, Hey, you watching Greenleaf? Like, have you hit her with that? I, no, <laughs> I, I feel like um, I'm not trying to abuse <laughs> the privilege. If she's not initiating it, I, I'm I'm not doing it. I'm, I don't want her to be like, let me change my number and, or block this woman's number. So no. <laughs> and Nicole, and that is why you are infinitely better than me because I'm a child and I would be hitting Oprah up, like hitting her with memes. Like, yeah, yeah Oprah, you see this? <laughs> She's like, I, why did I ever meet this woman? And of course, now I've just ensured that Oprah will never give me her telephone number. So it's never happening. So in addition to, um, you know, how, like how the, the project has, has changed your life professionally, do you feel more pressure? Because, you know, for most journalists, I mean, the Pulitzer, winning the Pulitzer is the pinnacle of our profession. So you do that. You put out this amazing project that will stand, I think, for generations. Everybody's like, all right, what you got next? So do you feel more professional pressure as a result of, of having done this? So definitely almost as, you know, as soon as the project published, people are like, what's next? And I'm like, can I just, can, can I, can I recuperate from the last 10 months? Um, but I actually... I don't feel that pressure because I already know, like, I'll never produce anything like the 6019 project again. It's it's a once in a um, career project. So uh, because of that, I don't feel pressure because I, I mean, I just, it's not going to happen. Like, I'm not saying, you know, I'm retiring or I won't produce good work anymore, but this was, um, this just will never be a project like like that. There'll never be a moment like that. There'll never be a chance to do an exploration like that. Um, so I don't feel pressure in that way. And um, honestly, winning the Pulitzer feels very similar to me in that whether whether you admit it to yourself or not, uh, every person who decides they want to become a journalist secretly or not so secretly hopes that one day you'll win the highest award in your profession. And um, having won it now, I'm like, I'm not going to win a Pulitzer again either. And that's fine because I don't have to. Like, I, I, I'm, Most people don't. So <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> you know, it, it was it was amazing how like overnight, like every time now uh, when people mention my name, that's what they say. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Um, so, no, I, I just think um, 
I always got into this to do the work that I thought was important and needed to be into the world. And everything that's come with it has been a truly unexpected bonus. I didn't ever expect uh, to work at the New York Times. I never applied to work at the New York Times. I never expected anyone would know my name. I mean, I'm literally a girl from Waterloo, Iowa. But I did want to do work in service of our people. And, um, and so because of that, it's like really liberating because I just I don't have expectations. I just want to, I want to do good work. Uh, I want to do work that matters and uh, don't expect to ever repeat this last year that I've had. Uh, I often get asked um, the question about from younger journalists, younger black journalists, and maybe very specific about this, about, you know, finding their voice, uh, trying to get into the type of work that I do now, type of work that you do and have done it far longer and much better than than I have, um, especially coming from the, the the sports side of things. For younger Black journalists who are listening to this or, or even get a chance to watch it, who want to know how they can get into um, covering the type of work that you do. I mean, you're specifically focused on civil rights and racial injustice. I know that there's not a lot of papers or publications creating those kind of beats, so what advice would you have for them if they want to eventually do the kind of work that you do? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great and important question. because I think it's really critical for younger journalists and upcoming journalists that we demystify all of this. I'm like, you know, my most of my career was like Master P trying to sell CDs out of the back of the trunk. And and I think folks need to realize, like, it, I'm 44 years old. It took a long time for me to get to this uh, place in my career. I started out a very traditional career. We started out in the same place, the uh, Raleigh News and Observer. I was a beat reporter. I covered education. I covered county government. I mean, I, I covered whatever I had to cover to get the reporting skills and chops and um, then built my way up to, to being able to do the type of coverage that I do now and to have the type of freedom that I have now. But it's not like I started out and anybody was going to be like, write 10,000 words for this cover story. Um, when I first started out, I couldn't get on the front page of the newspaper, no matter what I was writing. So I think it's really important that young journalists like do the work. Um, you don't have to start in New York City. You know, most of us started at smaller newspapers that actually allowed us to do some real reporting and develop some real skills. And we built up those skills and then worked our way up to a bigger establishment. And I don't believe in a hierarchy. Like if you have the talent to start at the New York Times, to start at the New York Times. Um, but I think had I started at the New York Times at a young age, I wouldn't be um, doing the work that I'm doing at the New York Times right now because I just wouldn't have had the experience. Another thing I'd say is, uh, you know, read really good journalism, study it. This is a craft. If, if there's a type of work that you want to do, study the people who do that type of work and how they do it. Um, and the last advice I'll give, which was not a problem uh, when I was coming up because we barely had the internet, but don't worry about your brand. Like I hear, I get this all the time when folks are like, right, how do I build my brand? You don't have a brand. Like what, the, the, the brand is the work. Like if you do the work, then whatever you think the brand is, the recognition will come. But you have to have a foundation of good work. Um, for most of my career, I, I wasn't allowed to be a race beat reporter. Most newspapers didn't have a race beat reporter. They weren't interested in that. I had to fight really hard to write about our folks, but I made myself eventually undeniable. And that's the same thing that you did, Jamel, right? Like you, you through the work, through doing the grunt work, through uh, being excellent, um, through not giving up, you make yourself undeniable. And that's what 
has allowed me now to do whatever work I want to. But 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. And um, I also try to tell them, too, that I was doing the work before it had an official title. Right. Because I imagine when you cut, co- you covered education. I'm going to just guess, especially given the, your commentary now about uh, segregation and, and what's happening with education, that you started writing those type of stories then. You know, your beat, your beat wasn't race and education. Your beat was just education. But you could see it through the lens of being um, of seeing a black community that has suffered greatly because of segregation. And you could write those stories. So even though officially at The Atlantic, my job is to cover um, the convergence of race, gender and sports and culture. I've been writing those stories for years. It just didn't have an it just didn't have an, an official, you know, kind of kind of title to it. So you don't need somebody to hire you to specifically do that work to start engaging and doing that work on on whatever um, you know beat that 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 you you happen to be doing. Um, and by the way, it, that's the thing about race, right? It's it's on every beat. Exactly. <laughs> every job they hired me on, I was writing about race. So I'm like, oh, you think I'm a county government reporter? But but look, I'm about to write about race. And uh, I wasn't a I wasn't a race writer until seven years ago, most of my career, I never had that title. But if you looked at what I was producing, I was a race writer. So, you know, a big part of, of being a journalist is you you give them what they want so you can do what you want. And you have to find a way to to do both of those things until you get to you know where we are. And then you just mostly get to do what you want. And you're one of the few people that I talked to that we had very similar, you know, paths. I'm also 44. And um, you, I, I hate telling the the young kids now what my journalism past was because it doesn't really apply to them anymore right I came up through traditional newspapers I don't know if I could in good faith encourage them to work for newspapers now because it's such a volatile industry unless you get opportunity to work at a New York Times or someplace that's like really stable so it kind of it doesn't even match up with with technology and social media being what it is now uh, along those same lines um you and uh also Wesley Lowry who recently wrote about this about there being this idea or this constant narrative that was pushed in our business and journalism that black journalists can't be objective when it comes to writing about race or really, yeah, anything dealing with race and that all the white people, because, you know, I guess because they weren't impacted as much by race, which to me is a disqualifying factor, not really one that makes you uh, somebody who should be at the front lines of, of writing about racial issues. But he attacked this very idea that black journalists can't be objective. And you said something that I had never really considered before when you were talking about white reporters covering education and how many of them, because, uh, you know, as you pointed out, and it's true, a lot of the education writers are white women and they never reported about segregation in education. And this was considered a good thing when to me it was a, a major blind spot. Um, what I'd like for, to hear from you is your thoughts on this idea and whether or not you feel like it's a crumbling idea that we as a journalist, must be objective at all times. I mean, first of all, it's not true, but like, what are your thoughts about uh, this this constant battle or, um, you know, conversation we're having about objectivity when we know it's kind of a, a false conversation? Yeah, so I've never subscribed to the notion that any human being can be objective about anything that they have any base of knowledge about. Um, if you're objective about something, you probably have, uh, don't know that much about it. And as soon as you learn enough about it, you have an opinion about it. What we've really been dealing with is, um, is news organizations wanting to 
uh, wanted reporters to have a veneer of objectivity, to pretend that we are objective and we don't have feelings and thoughts about things or that our lived experience doesn't matter. Um, but Black journalists have just never had that luxury. So I don't think white journalists are objective about anything. And I certainly don't think white uh, uh, journalists are objective about covering race. When you are in a white majority in a country founded on white supremacy, um, where the systems function largely to your favor, that's not an objective viewpoint in covering those systems. That's why white journalists were writing about segregation. It was segregation benefited them. It benefited their children. And it wasn't something um, that they thought was important, but that's not objective. Uh, and Black journalists, we have always been writing in a country that didn't think we were citizens, in a country that didn't think we deserved full rights. So how does one objectively write about lynching? How does one objectively write about Jim Crow? Uh, how does one objectively write about segregation um, as a Black journalist when clearly all of these have uh, impact? So I, I think that this idea of objectivity, we know even in American journalism, is fairly new. Um, when journalism first started in this country, even white journalists weren't pretending to be objective. The New York Times was founded as a Republican paper. Um, there were Democrat papers and Republican papers. And uh, white journalists have really used this notion of objectivity, I think, to, to put forth a white normative view and to obscure criticism because, well, hey, we're just, we're just being objective and presenting the facts. Was it objective when journalists, uh, published the police report of the police who killed Eric Garner when the police said that nothing happened and they didn't know how he died? Was that objective? I would argue that it wasn't. And what you're seeing now is, is Black journalists particularly being much more vocal about this fact that no one is objective. And our role as journalists is not necessarily to be objective, but it's to be fair. Are we fairly presenting the facts? Are we fairly airing the different viewpoints? Are our facts accurate? Um, should we be objectively covering a white nationalist in the White House? Or should we subjectively say, we actually care about democracy, we care about the rule of law, we care about citizens' rights, and we're gonna cover him that way. So I think it's, it is past time that we stop pretending that there's ever been uh, objectivity. Everything in news uh, is subjective. What beats we cover? Why do we have a, a police beat, but not a poverty beat? Um, that's a subjective decision. What do we put on the front page? That's a subjective decision. Who you interview, all of these are subjective decisions, but we've pretended they're objective and that's a way to really obscure uh, criticism. Um, so I'm glad to see more journalists feeling liberated to speak out about that. And I guess I should say there is a difference between uh, pretending to be objective and telling everybody what you think about the people you cover on your beat. I, I don't want to know who uh, Maggie Haberman votes for or what she personally feels about Donald Trump. I, I don't think that's useful, but I'm also not going to pretend that she has no thoughts or feelings about Donald Trump and, and what she's covering. Yeah, And not only that, um, you know, we have to, I've made this, this point, especially because I think this presidency has really forced us to contend with that illusion of objectivity is that if it's a lie, you got to be able to call it a lie. Like if you can't call it a lie, we sort of you lose our teeth as journalism. And just in unlearning uh, traditional forms of objectivity, what I found when I've gone back and even assessed some of my own work is that I gave a platform and I both cited some things that didn't deserve to be heard. You know, so you wind up pushing propaganda when you're just both siding 
you know, obvious things like you mentioned about something like lynching. Was there another side to be presented? What was the pro side of lynching? I would love to know what that was. Right. That's a hell of a column. I tell you what, we, we have to have that ability to say like, no, this shit ain't right. Or even, you know, when when newsrooms don't want to say the president is lying, that's a subjective decision because the objective thing is if he's lying, he's lying. Right. And we know that he's lying. Or when we want to use every euphemism for racism because we don't want to call something racist. That is not an objective decision because an objective decision would be that if something is racist, you call it racist. So again, like this veneer of objectivity is what many newsrooms actually want. And it's been really harmful for people of color and communities of color. I promise you fun questions. They're coming uh, before I get you out of here. Play a game with you, uh, Nicole. It's called This or That where I give you two choices. You got to pick one. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Take a sip of bubbly or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> seltzer. All right. Now, by bubbly, I didn't mean champagne. The brand of seltzer is called bubbly. I'm addicted to it, too. That's how I know the can. I was like, yep, I love that. <laughs> See, I got my Perrier with lime here, right? See, now I just feel super sedity for just having introduced this conference. It was very bougie, um, very un-Detroit-like of me. But it's called this or that. I'm going to give you two choices. You pick. All right. Uh, Warmth of Other Sons, the wonderful book by Isabel Wilkerson, which I think is is probably one of the best books on race I've ever read or Before the Mayflower. I'm going to have to go with Warmth because that's my favorite book of all time, though there would be no 1619 Project without uh, Leroy Bennett's Before the Mayflower. But I'm going to have to go with Warmth. Yeah, which is why I forced you to make that decision, because I knew before I knew how you felt about both of those books. That was kind of wrong. Exactly. Um, all right. And speaking of incredibly tough decisions and especially knowing your affiliation uh, with one of these particular people I'm going to bring up, Ida B. Wells or Ethel Payne. Oh, I'm definitely going to Ida. I mean, my Twitter handle is Ida B. Wells, for God's sakes. And yeah, Ida B. That's right. It's Ida B. Wells. And you're part of the Ida B. Wells Society, correct? Yeah, I'm one of the co-founders. Yeah, you're one of the co-founders. Correct. All right. Uh, a little less intense. Uh, girlfriends are living single. Living single. I actually never watched Girlfriends. Hope I don't lose any points for that. But uh, yeah, living single. And uh, Four Roses, Whiskey or Knob Creek? I'm going to go with Four Roses. Small batch, though. It got to it gotta be the small batch, Four Roses. And finally, to me, this is the question that defines blackness. No pressure. Um, there's only one right answer. We'll see. If you get it right. Otherwise, that 1619 Project. That's a lot. That's a lot of damn pressure, Dan. Okay. Yes, it is. It's going it's to take a major credibility hit if you get this wrong. <laughs> Off the wall or thriller? I feel like that's a trick question. <laughs> it is not a trick question. It's one right answer. <laughs> well, I'm guessing the right answer is off the wall, but come on. <laughs> you want to say thriller? <laughs> no, but I know, I know what the right answer is supposed to be. So I feel like I still, I, I win it. But I was, you know, thriller was... Thriller was amazing. Look, look, it was our age when Thriller came out. Off the wall, we were like babies. <laughs> if you want to say Thriller, Nicole, just say Thriller. All right. I want. I don't want people taking my black cards, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with my first answer. <laughs> well, that can never happen because you gave us 
um, a, a, a piece, a foundational piece. Not, I wouldn't say a foundational piece. That's probably the wrong term. But with the 1619 Project and really everything you've done, I mean, I don't want people to think that your career began and ended with this project. Uh, you just had an a, a essay recently about reparations that was quite good um, that I encourage people to read as well. So while that may be your defining project in air quotes, uh, you gave us something that we can hand down to our children. We can hand down to people in our family. Like really it was generational work. So I just can't thank you enough. And, um, you know, I acted like I won the Pulitzer when you, when you won it. I was like, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> but it, it really, as I said earlier in this podcast for black journalists like myself, it really gave us just a glimmer of, of hope that we can one day really do something that will, kind of leave a legacy and you, and you were able to do that. So thank you for giving that to all of us, not just black journalists, but black people in general. Thank you so much. All right. Well, uh, everybody, Nicole's getting out of here and man, I feel like my IQ went up in this entire podcast. Uh, <laughs> Nicole's getting out of here, but I'm still sticking around. Y'all know what's next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Now, we've heard how WAP, and y'all know what I mean by WAP, and if you don't know, think Cardi B and Meg the Stallion. We've all heard how WAP is undefeated. Many a great man in history has fallen victim to the WAP. The power of WAP is well established, and yet despite this being common knowledge, men just can't help but put themselves in a position to be WAP whipped. Our latest example is Kamaz Sivaran, who up until recently was living his best life as an undrafted free agent rookie cornerback in the Seattle Seahawks training camp. Sivaran was focused on making the team, but WAP had other plans. Sivaran was cut by the Seahawks because he was caught on video sneaking a woman into the team hotel that has happened before for sure but what makes this situation so unique is that the woman he was trying to sneak into the hotel was dressed like a Seahawks player like a dude what in the wop is going on here that he thought this dumbass plan was going to work is why I'm bothered I mean it was creative but it was stupid this is one of those situations where you have to ask yourself, self, is the juice worth the squeeze? Pun intended, especially considering we're in a pandemic. So sneaking women into your hotel doesn't have, you know, the same harmless charm it might have had before. You'll fuck around and sneak in COVID and destroy a whole football team. It's a shame because it's not easy to get a look from a team as an undrafted free agent. And if you think that what the Seahawks did was harsh, understand that for undrafted free agents, the room for error is razor thin, if at all. There's a line of players willing to take your place. So as far as the team is concerned, they can cut you for this infraction and find somebody to replace you within the hour. Now, I do feel bad for Severan. All he got out of this experience was a $2,000 signing bonus. Since the incident gained so much publicity, it might make it harder for another team to take a chance on them. But in the meantime, let this be a lesson to you men. Respect the power of the WAP. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. 
From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent, and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Erica Clark, and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs>